singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by writing a review on iTunes or by simply making a donation. Today, my guest is a college dropout who decided to travel across Asia on the princely yearly budget of $2,500. $2,500 for a year of travels. He later co-founded Wired Magazine and was a long-term senior maverick and editor there. In fact, this person is way too many things to list here, so for brevity, I will just steal Tim Ferriss's uh, words who called him the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> so, Kevin Kelly, welcome to Singularity One-on-One. -on -One. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to live up to that billing, but I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Nicola, for having me be present. Well, uh, I think that anyone who's followed you for the last uh, 35 or 40 years uh, already mm. knows that that's insufficient. But uh, let's, let's, uh, I know your time is very valuable, so let's jump right into the meat of the matter. Okay. Um, so, Kevin, if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in your own few words, how would you do that? Who is Kevin Kelly? Yeah, well... <clears throat> I am a packager of ideas. I enjoy trying to convey ideas, whether they are conceptual, visual, uh, emotional, and try and um, put them in a way that other, I like to share. I'm a share. And so uh, I like to share complex ideas. And um, most of what I've been doing in my life is in some ways about trying to share those things that I have discovered and um, grappled with sometimes um, and then help others maybe see something similar. Very, very interesting. Uh, and since we are on your personality, I hope you forgive me the audacity to ask you a little bit more uh, kind of a Go ahead. personal question. Uh, you know, uh, your beard has been a part of the Kevin Kelly personality <laughs> for as long as I can remember. Yeah. So, so can you? Is there a story mm. behind the Amish beard? Is there a symbolism behind mm -hmm. it? Perhaps. Uh, what, what does it represent? If I may uh, ask. <laughs> it doesn't really represent anything. There, there, unfortunately, there's not a lot of symbolism. It had really nothing to do with the Amish because I arrived at the beard right after high school and um, the, the, the simple kind of yucky uh, honest truth is that I originally had a full beard and mustache and I just found the mustache too itchy. So I decided off the mustache goes and um, I was simply that it was uncomfortable. And so that's the entire significance. Um, and it's no more than that. Because the interesting thing is that uh, uh, you, I know you, you spent uh, a lot of time with the Amish, and right. you even talked a lot about uh, that in your previous book, which is called uh, What Technology Wants. And, uh, you know, people are curious, perhaps, if there's any... If there's a connection, yeah. Yeah, yeah no. So, so, I mean, it certainly does ease maybe some introductions in the Amish land, but um, it predated my interest in it by you know, a decade or more. Um, 
and now of course is sort of just um part of me and how i i think of myself mm-hmm. very interesting so Kevin, I don't know if you remember, but we actually did an interview with you about six years ago when uh, What Technology Wants uh, came out first. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, at that point, uh, which, by the way, I, I recommend uh, my viewers to check out that interview if they haven't seen it for a number of reasons, and, and especially the book, because I think uh, the best way to describe that book was that it is the anti-Unabomber manifesto, (laughs) which I think was very well put, actually. And it's also very poetically written, uh, very, Mm. very beautiful uh, and insightful. So I recommend people check both the book and the previous interview we did with you about six years ago. And let me share with you an insight that you shared with me at the time, and I didn't appreciate it, but I've gotten to appreciate since then. You know, at the time we did that interview, I had only done maybe 20, 25 podcast episodes of Singularity one-on-one. And when we discussed uh, the singularity, you told me that you are a lot more of a pluralist rather than a singular kind of futurist, which uh, singularitarians tend to be. And I have to admit, uh, at the time, I failed to appreciate that. But after Mm -hmm. 200 interviews with a variety (laughs) of people, I have gotten to see myself exactly that same way. Mm -hmm. Or as Carl Schroeder put it, the singularity is a lens. It's a useful lens. You pick it up and you look uh, at the future through that lens. But it's very useful to have other lenses in your kit. I know you're using a super zoom camera there, Beck. So... It's very useful to have a diversity of focal lengths to view the world through and not to limit oneself through a single lens. So thank you for that insight. Yeah, I, I think that's very true that um, you definitely want, want to have more than one scenario. And uh, singularity is a scenario. And not only that, but it's now a mythic scenario. And I think like any myths, it can be very useful, even though in my eyes, it's only a myth. It is as powerful as a myth is, which is often very powerful indeed. So I think this is a powerful idea. It just happens to be most likely wrong, but it's useful as a myth. Right, but as some people have pointed out, myth-making is world-making, is nation-building, is anything major has involved some kind of myth-creation going on along the way. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you... you, you, uh, um, it's myths are not necessarily bad is what I'm saying. So it can, they can be useful. So tell me then, has your kind of view of the singularity, perhaps be it as an idea, be it as a community evolved also since the last time we had this conversation six years ago, since your previous book? <clears throat> um, Um, no, I mean, I, I, I might have, uh, I, I, I think I, I, I would describe that there's various types of singularities, uh, various definitions. And I think that the probability of a softer version of it, I call it softer. Um, the, I, I can imagine, um, certain singularities as being more probable than others. And the singularity that I tend to gravitate to as, as, as more likely is one that involves not intelligence explosion in the terms of a, 
the way we normally think of it as <clears throat> um, AIs bootstrapping themselves into high orders, but more of the arrival of a planetary scale uh, intelligence that is uh, like George Dyson describes it. The internet maybe wakes up and becomes exactly something like that. That 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 that, that it, it creates a singularity in the sense that it creates a horizon beyond which we can become very difficult for us to understand. But it isn't necessarily that it's a, uh, a bootstrapped uh, uh, explosion. It's it's simply that we create something that it, that is operating at a level that a planetary level that is sort of beyond us in terms of being able to comprehend it. So. It's a it's a different vision of a of a singularity. It's certainly probably within that the general umbrella, and it may produce some similar effects. But it's that 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 scenario to me has a little bit more life in it and viability than um, the classical Kurzweilian version. Mm -hmm. And and why would you lean towards that scenario? I because I, I still find the pathway to the Carswellian version to be extremely unlikely, not impossible, but just unlikely um, for a number of different reasons. We're happy to go, to talk about them, but um, mm -hmm. the, the, the primary one I think is with fallacy I call thinkism. Yeah, I actually remember we went through that uh, very yeah. very deeply uh, during the last interview. So I don't uh, I don't want to be redundant because your time is super valuable. So sure, sure. Let me, and I know you're a big fan of Chinese culture. So let me see if I can kind of approach our conversation from this angle. The Chinese have a proverb that says that uh, to know the fruit, look at the root, and to know the future, look at the past. So I wonder if looking at the past and trying to figure out the future, trying to figure out te technology is to try to look at not technology. And that's probably a poor way of saying, can the Amish teach mm -hmm. us anything about our technology, how we adopt it and mm -hmm. what we should learn? Is there like, are there like perhaps the top several lessons of the Amish that we should consider ourselves as a civilization and their I, attitude? Yeah. <clears throat> I think there are some lessons from the Amish, which is why I included them in my last book. But I, I but I think they're, they're very limited. I mean, the thing about the Amish that's different from us is first of all, they're not anti technology at all. They're just they're just slow in adoption. But but more importantly, while each of us here is actually making decisions about what technologies that we want and we will continue to make more of those decisions in the future as there's more and more varieties of technology we will be increasingly not choosing uh more a, a larger percentage just simply we can't because we're, we're limited um the difference between us and the amish is that the amish do this collectively they they do it socially they have a social consensus whereas we do it individually and the second thing is they have a very they've, – they've basically articulated their logic and their reasons about what the criteria is for their selection, which also we haven't done individually. We usually don't even know. So they've surfaced those two things. One is they made a criteria, which they kind of use, and secondly, they do it collectively. And that to me is the main, the main lesson um, 
from from this and them and us is that they've actually kind of thought about it and they do it more deliberately and we do it kind of ad hoc we don't even know why but as we go into the future i mean i mean i think that's really the only lessons that i w- i would get and um as we go into the future i mean there are so many other issues about technology that we're dealing with that the Amish have no no clue about and nothing really to offer that um i i i i don't think that there are going to be a major guidance Mm-hmm. I was just trying to see if sort of the Zen attitude of of like to learn something, look at nothing, and to learn about the no, that's, that's right. not that's not the Amish. <laughs> the Amish are very very practical. They are they they they're kind of really incredibly pragmatic, and um, there's there's really I mean that's not what they're doing at all. Well, one thing though is that they don't seem to have our kind of fetishism for disruption that we seem to have in Silicon Valley, for example. That's true. View, right? That's so true. We all, and, and if even the lingo there, like when you have with a startup, it's all about my idea would disrupt this and disrupt that and disrupt. So we are kind of like putting value on disruption without actually clarifying whether that's a good or a bad thing necessarily. Whereas I think they have a lot more rational approach and as you said, even pragmatic because they want to kind of actually look and even have some foresight to the outcome perhaps. Right, right. So, so the criteria that they're that they're examining and, and placing against all the criteria, they have two criteria or three maybe. The, 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 the first one is, is um, they use uh, and abstain from technology as a means for identity, for their identification. So that's why they'll, they'll use solar energy but not wired electrical because it creates a separation. So they want to be separate. That's the first thing. So they do things to emphasize this identity. The second thing is that they ask, will this technology bring their families together? together and so their 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 optimum their 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 goal is actually to have every single meal breakfast lunch and dinner with their whole family children and father and mother and so they will bring businesses to in their backyard they'll say can this can we have a do a business that will that we're happy to live right next to us in the backyard and it has to be clean in that sense in order for us to have meals together and then the third one is um does it bring our community together So they, they do horse and buggy because they can only go 15 miles and therefore they are forced to shop locally or visit, go to church locally, whatever. So it, that, that restriction forces them to emphasize their community. And so will this new technology help that or work against that? And that's basically what they're going through. And so um, that's not our set of, uh, I mean, for most people, that's probably not what they're mm-hmm. trying to do, but that's theirs. And so there is a sense in which they are... Um, conscious of that and they're deliberately choosing and anything else that doesn't fit into that is sort of so they have a default no the, the, the default is no unless it can do those things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very interesting yeah and i know we share a, a love for a particular technology with them both you and me and that's the one uh called the bicycle of course well uh, actually interesting not all the amish do use bicycles they do some do some don't Oh, okay, because I, I, we have some communities of Amish here right. in, in Ontario where, where I'm uh, uh, located, right, right. and I've seen uh, some of them with, right. with bicycles. Some, some do, some don't. And um, uh, the ones that do, oftentimes maybe the kids only, and that's another one is, is, is sometimes only the kids do it. But um, yes, and, and it, this varies parish by parish, which is one of the, the difficulties of talking about the Amish is that their practices vary tremendously and in fact the 
the, 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 the home area of the Amish is Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is the most liberal in a certain sense. And the further away you get, the more conservative they become. Very interesting. Yeah. Huh. Wow. So there's lots to say about the Amish, but in fact, I, I, I think that um, while it's, it's interesting uh, and, and helpful, I think for our own, to, to, I think they provoke us to try and articulate ourselves what our criteria for, for uh, technological adoption would be. I think that's the main thing is that inspiration to say you should think through and have some system for how you decide what technologies you're going to use. What are you trying to optimize? Mm -hmm. I agree completely with that. And also the reason why I love that uh, example of the Amish is because to me, one way that I judge a society is how does it treat the people and the groups and communities at the fringes? Yeah. Is it tolerance to them or not? And I'm very proud to live in a place which allows uh, the Amish to peacefully coexist with us, uh, even though, as you point out in your previous book, they kind of free ride on the system in some ways, yeah. but that's okay. That's part of a proper society that I want to be part of. Uh, and and I'm proud to be a part of. Right, they, they they free ride in the sense that they're not creating the technologies that they're using. However, they realize that and they're very very deliberate in in trying to return the payment back by doing service, public service. And you'll look if you go to those communities, they are all the volunteer firemen. They're the volunteer ETMs. They are the volunteers who do, uh, you know, work in the soup kitchens. They're very very active as their sense of repayment to the community for the free riding on the technological side. Yeah, exactly. And, and I hope our future would allow uh, people to make that choice uh, indefinitely to stay away from technology should they choose to, to do so. It's not right. going to be my choice, but sure. I respect the, the right, right, right. orders. And, and just, just to close on the Amish, I have a prediction. And my prediction would be that in, say, 100, 150, 50 years maybe, that the heartland of American, North American farmland will all be run by the Amish <laughs> um, because they have huge families. They never sell farmland. They're always buying it. They take great, they're great stewards of the, of, of the land. Um, they're very dedicated to it. So they will take over all these struggling farms. They'll farm it in their way and we'll move, continue to move into the cities and the suburbs and the entire heartland will be all Amish. Very interesting prediction. So uh, when we get to the interview 150 years from now, I'm going to- Yeah, please check. Check, check on, on, on where we stand on that. Uh, now, okay, so let's move on to some of the larger questions and lessons here uh, before we jump into the sort of the, the book details. I, I'm just curious, if, we're to, if you were to give, I know you have three kids, right? If you were to give uh, only one thing to, that you can teach them, one in, in terms of sort of mm -hmm. life in general, one in terms of technology, and one in terms of ethics, mm -hmm. what would those three things be? Well, um, <clears throat> I think the, 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 the first thing about learning is, is by far, to me, the most valuable skill is how to learn. Uh, how, how, basically how to learn. And so learning how to learn is the meta skill. That's the fundamental skill that we all need into the future. And so I, I hope that we have been able to instill that into our three kids is this 
uber ability to learn how to learn and, and specifically to learn how they learn. Each of us has a different mode where we learn better. And part of this is not just learning how to learn, but to learn how you learn in the best way, how they learn. So being able to tap into understanding how their own learning process works best. So that's the first skill. Um, in terms of ethics, I think the one ethical thing that, that I really try to convey is I think the fundamental ethical principle is honesty, absolute honesty, that, that, that so much of trouble and other ills of the world stem from not being honest and honest in the broadest sense of being transparent, being clear, being authentic, not fooling yourself. It's not just not lying. It's, it's all these other things about really um, being um, upright in a certain sense. And that if you're not honest, these other uh, many other ethical things are just really hard to do. How do you teach your kids to be honest? First and foremost, by being honest with them. Kids are really good at learning from example. They basically do what you do, not what you say. And so it's not by telling them, it's by being honest ourselves. And that's, so we are, so, so, so one of the things, I mean, this is a minor thing, but for me, it was a big thing. We never told them about like Santa Claus or anything. We, we didn't try, we didn't work against it, but we didn't, we didn't do it because I didn't want to ever be accused of like deceiving. Mm -hmm. So, there, so, so, so we, we didn't say very much about it. We didn't talk him down, but we'd never said that he was real. And so I, I, I never wanted to have my kids not be able to understand that we weren't being honest with them. But that's just a tiny thing about, just a tiny example. So being honest with them is, is the way. Um, and I think uh, emphasizing and rewarding. And so a lot of, to me, uh, people often, you know, find out parenting is about, you know, disciplining the misbehaviors, but there's far more power in elevating the good than there is in trying to prevent the bad. And so you, you reward their honesty is another way of saying that. Mm -hmm. What was it? What was the third question? I'll come back to what to it. The third one is yeah. about technology, but uh, what if you are in a situation which Rousseau, I think it was who, who said something like to speak the truth in a amidst madmen is is madness or something of that sort to that effect. you mean uh should you ever lie is what you, is that the question you're asking the, the, the question is in a situation where everybody's lying oh. so says it's kind of crazy to say the truth in a way because i don't think so because it's, it's okay, it, it, it might be so different it's crazy sure sure i mean yes i mean There's i've never price to be paid sure i've never i've never myself been in the situation when the nazis are knocking at the door and asking if we're hiding and frank in the basement you know <laughs> right okay so 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 there, there I, i could certainly understand where there may be situations where there is a greater good But most of life is not like that. It's nowhere even near that. Well, uh, just to give you an example out of my own sort of life, 
uh, I was in the army. In I, I grew up in Bulgaria, and when you're 18 there, you have to go. You used to not anymore, but you used to have to go to the army or you go to jail, because that was the law. Anyway, so there was this one situation in which I spoke to my commanding officer in front of everybody, and that in some situations you can get shot on the spot uh, because kind of questioning a superior officer's order is punishable by death, death on the spot in some situation. Because if you don't have a discipline in the army, you, you have nothing, basically. It all falls apart. And I was sent for three months in a punishment unit, consequently. So, <laughs> so that's one case where, you know, it gave me a lot to think about whether I did the right thing or not. And in the end, after the three months and in the first week there, I didn't think, even know if I'm going to make it, to be honest. Um, but after the whole thing was over, I still had no regrets. Uh, but, but it still showed me that there's a price to be paid, even yeah. if we don't realize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I said, um, I don't know if I would be strong enough in my own ethics to do what you did. Um, but but you, I think you would have to admit that even in, in your entire life, that was still probably an exceptional uh, situation, sure. and that most most of life is not as extreme as that. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and then the last uh, third point that uh, I was asking before that: uh, what would you teach? Uh, what one thing would you teach your kids about technology? So, in a, in, a, in a practical sense, I think one of the things that 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 I have been very slow to myself to realize is that um, for every bit of technology we bring into our lives that there is a cost. And that cost is often not the purchase price, but it's the, the maintenance cost, the cost of fitting it in, the cost of, of the, the attention that it will require from us, that there is a sort of a, a subsidy cost to these things, that you can't just bring something in without uh, in some ways paying for it over time. And so um, uh, as our lives become more complicated, this is sort of an ecosystem view that you can't just bring an additional species and then it's like another trophy on your desk. No, it fits in. And if it is working, it'll have an effect throughout the entire ecosystem. And so that realization to me suggests that, you know, this curation or minimalist attitude that you want to be very, very selective about what it is. I'm, I myself will try almost anything, but actually bringing them home to live is a different, is a different question. And so um, I think, I think that's what I would say is look, you know, uh, there, 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 there's, a, there's, there's a buried cost in all these things. Um, and I think actually my kids have, have gotten that. My, my daughter who's in her 20 surprised me because she's not on Facebook. She's, mm-hmm. And she's decided wow. she's decided that that cost was not what something she wanted to do. She's actually not on on any of the social media. That was, and she's working in a hip San Francisco startup, and she's not on the social media. And so, um, we we also grew up without TV. So that's um, I think we were kind of showing yeah, there's there's an advantage to this, but there's a cost to that, and we're not going to pay the cost. Yeah, to me that's like saying that you know whether in our life or in our heads, we have a limited shelf space. And to put right. something new, 
we either have to remove something or just lump everything closer together. And there's always going to be an impact. So we better make sure right, right, we right. bring something to put on that shelf. It's worth doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, now, is it fair to say that perhaps the previous book, What Technology Wants, was in a way about the philosophy, or if you will, the metaphysics of technology, and then perhaps the new book uh, is about what? Yeah, so, so in retrospect, I would say the last book, What Technology Wants, offered the world a crude prototype of a theory of technology. So, so, so there really isn't, a, I mean, biology was a parade of curiosities before Darwin. Uh, pe people collected these natural specimens. They had these curiosity cabinets. They, 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 they were amused and, and fascinated and delved into the workings of all these different creatures in the world. But there was nothing that, that sort of made sense of how they got there or why they were. And the attention of everybody was just on the next biological curiosity. Uh, then Darwin came along and gave a theory of how these were all integrated and in, in actually the results of a process. These were all kind of products that, that the results of a process since the main event was a process. Technology in my eyes was the same thing as Darwin, as biology pre-Darwin. We have, every technology that comes along is just another one in the parade of things and we collect these on your shelf, so to speak. And there was nothing that unified them. And I'm, and I was, trying to offer say no this is these things are the products of a process and that process is actually the same process that produces biological life okay that's so, why i called it the metaphysics right it's a metaphysical thing it's it but it's actually a theory it's a philosophy but it's but it's more than philosophy i think evolution is more than a philosophy it's a it's a theory and so i'm suggesting that there's a theory that there's a theory behind a technology in this book uh, and, and that was a long-term view. And so the theory is that it's a cosmic force, just like I would say evolution is a cosmic force. Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying the origins of, of technology is not like in our own brains. It's actually way deeper. It's back to the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. This book is, is, is not as cosmic. It's saying, um, if you just, let's just look at how that plays out in the next 30 years. And so I'm taking not the cosmic view, but taking uh, what was a much shorter view is still long term for us, but it's a shorter view of saying specifically how would these trends that I these trajectories I talk about how would they be in finer resolution operate in the next thirty years? And so it's a a relatively closer view of the same process I was trying to describe in what technology wants. And now I'm saying, well, how does that manifest itself in our in our lives in the next thirty years? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And before we jump into the details here, I want to ask you something else, which is interesting to me, though, is that you're focusing on the next 30 years uh, on those 12 trends and or main kind of directions, verbs that, that, yeah. that, that you're talking about. But you're not doing that in a sort of and you even mentioned the word cosmic, but you never go teleological like Ray, Ray Kurzweil goes yeah. in his book, for example, right? Where, right. you know, at the end of the last stage, the universe mm. wakes up. Mm -hmm. Why not? And, and I mean, 
you are kind of a devoted Christian, and so one would assume you'd be the teleological one, mm-hmm. and yet Ray is the teleological one, and He's you're not. He's a teleological atheist, yeah. So um, I think one of the differences, it maybe goes back to your earlier point about the singularity versus the pluritarian, and that is is that um, I, I I see evolution as, not, as having trajectories, as having directions and not a single direction that this is an outward radiation of many different dimensions and that uh evolution is not a ladder going up towards a specific omega point which is a little bit of kind of raised you that, that, that these kind of teotrodons where we're kind of converging on some ultimate destination i see this as directions with multiplicity of going outward irradiating outward and so um these directions i'm saying there really are directions in evolution and there really are directions in technology but they're not a single direction they're multiple radiating outward and so i don't see us going to a fixed destination i see us having directions and that's the difference I have come to to the same conclusion myself. Uh, to be honest, uh, uh, in it, it took a while, mm-hmm. but but this is precisely where I find myself uh, sitting today. I'm a lot more open, uh, and, and and I I, I actually am anti teleological because of mm-hmm. of sort of my own personal learning journey that I've had for the, for the past six right. years. Right, but it's not, it's not anti-theological. Theological only means that there's a purpose or, 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 or will or direction. And so I would say my view is theological. It's just that it's not converging on an end point. It's theological in a sense that there are, I believe, that there are drives, that there, that there, that there are um, directions, um, that, it's, that there's purposes, you could say. Engines. But, engines but they're not singular and so the difference is kind of like a singular theological versus a multiple theological exactly. and, and, and and so so i don't think it's anti-theological i think it's this anti-singularity to me that your position and, and my position are, are are kind of the same and in a way that they're very open to alternatives whereas the the, the classic singularitarian position is like a slide. It's like a single trajectory right. from here to the omega point, which doesn't right. allow for any left or right turns or anything like that. In that sense, you know, that, that that's the sense in which I'm saying I'm... Right, right. And, and so I, I use in the word inevitable, okay? And so the inevitabilities, they're, they're actually, it's actually plural. And the inevitable to me are the larger forms um, that are these trends, these directions, whereas the specifics, the products, are completely inherently unpredictable. So the, the analogy that I would use is, you know, imagine rain falling into a valley. The path of a particular raindrop as it goes down the, the slopes to the river is completely inherently unpredictable. But the direction is inevitable, which is downward. Okay, and th- and that there are multiple directions, um, and so um, we can talk about the telephone being inevitable, but the iPhone's not. We can say the internet was inevitable. On any planet you want to go in the galaxy, there'll be an internet, but Twitter's not inevitable. Mm-hmm. So the large, like let's say, quadrupeds in biology, 
-hmm. four feet. This is the physics. The physics demand that that's a very stable thing. So that's inevitable, but the zebra is not. Or the eye is inevitable. The eye is inevitable because there's 30 times it was attention. But the particular iris, uh, you know, the eye that we have is not at all inevitable. And right. so, um, so, so, so I'm, I'm talking again, these, these are kind of a general direction, some basic forms, which are baked into the very nature of the physics of how chips work, how wires, how electrons work. That we, that we would see these same things probably in other planets. Mm -hmm. um, those kinds of large forms are inevitable, but the particulars are not. And by the way, we have a choice about the particulars. And those choices make a huge difference to us. So the internet was inevitable, but what kind of internet we are gonna, gonna have, whether it's open or closed, whether it's national or international, whether it's commercial or nonprofit, those are not inevitable. We have choices about that. and they make a huge difference to us. And so the, the kind of the, 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 the emphasis of my book is I think we need to embrace the large trends and engage in the technology in order to steer it down into the particulars. Because if we try to prohibit it, if we try to turn it back, turn it off, turn it down, mm -hmm. then we don't get to steer it. Exactly. And so it's only by engaging in the technology that we can steer it into the particulars that we want and we value. And so that's the, the larger preaching is, is that we want to embrace the increasing AI, the increasing tracking, the increasing interaction, all these things, because they're going to happen anyway. And when we engage them, that we have much more chance of, of optimizing their benefits and minimizing their harms. We have a much more of a chance of actually steering them to the new jobs that they want to do than we do then by trying to stop them or prohibit them. Mm -hmm. I totally uh, understand and agree with you. My concern is that you will be attacked just like you were attacked with the previous book because people said, oh, technology doesn't want anything, right? Now, some because, I mean, I don't think they even read the book to see mm -hmm. what you meant in the first place, but but now they're going to say, look, Kevin, nothing nothing is inevitable. Yeah, well, well, well so... so, so um... I th one of the differences is, I, I, while I think that technology is an evolutionary system, I think that the sequence that we have is much more developmental than evolutionary. So that means that, for instance, you, your, your own body went through a progression of, you know, um, uh, uh, you know egg, bastula, uh, um, uh, fetus, uh, em embryo, you know, infant, newborn, uh, adolescent and that and all those were inevitable so if you lived long enough you would be uh, an adolescent and that was you had no choice about that that was this inevitable in the progression you had a choice about what kind of teenager you were but not that you were a teenager mm -hmm. and so I think there's actually a progression in uh, technological development which uh, things are inevitable and um, so uh, people are yeah I mean, I think people are upset about the idea of anything being inevitable. Yeah. They rebel against that. But in, but in fact, there's, we have plenty of room for human free will in this world um, uh, of constrained evolution. And um, uh, it's not a matter of subsuming or, or, or surrendering. It's, it's a matter of, of taking better advantage of the places that we do have choice. That's exactly the next following question and the direction I wanted to take us because the reason why people rebel and have a natural 
uh, or intuitive pushback to that is because they want to fight against determinism. Right. And they want to support free will. So tell me where you stand on that whole thing about, because I'm amazed how many people I interview on my show, amazing scientists who are hardcore determinists. So where do you stand on that line? Are you a determinist? Uh, well, I'm not sure if I'm if we're using, if I know what you mean by determinist. But I, I, I do think that, um, how should I say this? I think that... Um, in this cosmos, in, in this long trend of, of increasing extropy in the world of increasing entropy, so we have these pockets of, of, of uh, intelligent order arising um, out of um, the general trend of increasing entropy. And actually, the way that you make this order is actually increase the amount of entropy that you're, you're creating, that there are... Um, uh, that, 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 that pathway is actually constrained. There's a creative constraint in it, meaning that you can't do everything. That, that you know, we have, a, we have a fixed number of elements, chemical elements. They can only produce certain number of compounds and that likewise built upon that, there, there are certain constraints in what you can make and particularly what you can make through self-organized uh, evolution. Once we have intelligence, we have another force, which we're still constrained in terms of what we can do. And so um, what I'm saying is, is that there is a, a narrow pathway. It's, it, it, it's not like every step of the way where there's, we have no free will, but that there's free will that's bounded in some way. So Within the cone of the possible future. Exactly right. And so, and so there is both a general constraint that's determined by the physics of the universe, but within that cone, within that constraint, there is free will. So does that make me a determinist? I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't think, I don't think that makes you a determinist. Well, the, the inflexible, stiff version of determinism is, you know, the Newtonian idea that, you know, give me the velocity and the mass of a, uh, uh, if I know everything about a single atom, then I can predict anything yeah, okay. from there onwards. Okay, right, right. That's kind of strict determinism. So, so I go with the, the, the Freeman Dyson version of the world. And he contends, and he's not the only one, but there's, there, there's a subset of physicists who contend that the you know, cosmic decay, the cosmic spin, that it actually is not a random event that you that is actually a, an act of free will that that the that the the likelihood does not resemble the total randomness is not a choice it looks more like it's choosing to and so that 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 there is a sense in which is you can only way you can kind of explain this particle doing something is that it's free will even though there's nothing complicated about it and that, that that choice is actually the foundation of all the are all all the free will that we have in our own brains or the animals may have derived from the fact that there is something happening that's not random and it's not just order so so they would they would attribute the 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 currents of free will in us as the fact that that this actually exists before us and that we are compounding it in some ways. And so um, I take that view that the source of our free will is actually, again, a cosmic force that we're amplifying and all large systems amplify that, that they, you know, a lot of natural selection and all these kinds of things 
result from the fact that we can have randomness, that in addition to randomness, there's also free will. Right, that kind of has elements and reminds me to the Penrose hammer of uh, quantum yeah. theory of consciousness. Right, right. Um, right. Now, now let, let's go to, to your book, and I, I'd like to read uh, your thesis uh, because uh, I think it's actually worth reading verbatim. It's a little long, but, but I think it's worth reading. So let me do so. Quote, in the past 30 years, the social economy based on this technology has had its ups and downs and seen its heroes come and go. But it is very clear there have been large-scale trends governing what has happened. These broad historical trends are crucial because the underlying conditions that birthed them are still active and developing, which strongly suggests that these trends will continue to increase in the next few decades. There is nothing on the horizon to decrease them, even the forces we might think could derail them, like crime, war, or our own excesses, also follow these emerging patterns. In this book, I describe a dozen of these inevitable technological forces that will shape the next 30 years. And then a little later, you say that those forces are things like becoming, cognifying, flowing, screening, accessing, sharing, filtering, remixing, interacting, tracking, questioning, and then beginning. So let me start backwards. Why put beginning at the end? <laughs> I was amused by that. Uh, <laughs> I think it's to emphasize the fact that I genuinely believe that compared to what we'll have in 30 years, that we'll look back on what we have now and really feel like we haven't even started. That um, just as we might look back 30 years from now and say, oh my gosh, in terms of the digital arena, we nothing nothing had happened. Um, and I think um, it's to emphasize several things. One that 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 there's that there is uh, uh, that most of the really good things uh, are ahead of us, but also to emphasize that um, I think the things that we'll be making uh, are, are going to be at a scale. I mean, one of the big, the big, the big trend is 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 that that we're going to be doing planetary stuff. That it will be at a scale that we can only call what we have right now a, a birth. That 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 uh, it's it's really um, we're not just talking about extensions of things that already happened, but actually the birth of something new. And that birth is this planetary superorganism you mentioned earlier jurisdictions of the internet becoming awake but it's it's more complicated than that i i describe it as a superorganism where we're we were uh weaving together uh seven eight billion humans and eight trillion devices and you know the entire technium and implanting all the stuff into nature and this is converging over time, and we'll see it more visibly in the next 30 years, into this thing that is operating um, in the planetary way and having planetary consequences, the, 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 the thing itself. And, and, and I think we'll look back as saying, well, it was kind of born now. So that's why this, this is this birth. It's the beginning. And so um, I, I, I think this is oftentimes seen as kind of a metaphor, 
And I'm saying we're beyond this as a metaphor. This is actually a real thing that we'll be able to measure, that we'll be able to quantify, that we'll be able to falsify. It is in reality a new thing. And we're not kind of aware of it. We, this is where we get into singularity. It's, it's, it's something that's going to be very hard for us to understand and comprehend. And, but I, I think we will understand that it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And and that going back to the title, I want to see if you want to put any caveats or if there's any possible points of failure of that vision. Because when I interviewed Werner Vinge, you know, and I asked him, okay, you wrote your famous paper in 1993, and you said that within 30 years the human era would be would have would be ended, and that would put us about 2022. And we we're now seven or eight years away. Have has your timeline changed? And I did the interview about four or five years ago. He said he sticks by his timeline, falling short of some kind of major global mm-hmm. civilization-wide disaster, be it nuclear mm-hmm. war, be it something like yeah, an asteroid yeah. impact or something like that. So is there any possible points of failures that can yeah. prevent that vision? Yes, there is. There's actually a very simple one. And that is if Moore's law stopped. If 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 the if the People general say just did like Intel even made an announcement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 that's. Um, I mean, the, the thing about Moore's law that people should really understand is that all along it has been changing its definition of what's actually being measured or doubled, and um, I suspect that. Formerly, that's what will be done is we'll start to measure something else and retroactively go back and, and you know, and, and redraw the line, which will be the same line. But if it was to truly stop, not just in terms of a, a definitional way, but if it actually, if, if, if the doubling of, of processing power was to stop increasing every year for the same price or half the price, um, that would have a huge impact on uh on this because um this is all based on the fact that we have this assumption of continual process in the uh the, the power of everything that we're making and if that was to stop that would definitely definitely kibosh well intel came up with an announcement uh, just i think a month yeah, ago i know was that not well so it and now it's up to the of course the the interpretations whether that was it or wh- whether that was not it where do you stand on that? Well, as I said, I, th- I think what we're going to do, um, I'm imagining what the first thing to do is, is, is we'll redefine Moore's Law as the number of transistors and it would be like, you know, the number of transistors per, per cubic. We go into 3D or there may be um, something else that we'll start to measure. Maybe it's the, um, the f- I don't know, it's the, uh, the speed of the cycles or something. So, so uh, if... If more, if what we're talking about really stopped, that would be hu- so huge because it would mean that, um, uh, you know, every year nothing would improve. I mean, none of this digital stuff would improve in terms of we could maybe reduce the the software cycles. You get some improvements there, but it would be really, really tough if that was really true. I suspect that what it is is that the current way of measuring Moore's law is ending. And the, just getting things smaller and smaller is no longer enough. You have to have other ways in which you increase the processing power per dollar, whatever that is. And that's sort of what we're looking at. 
And that's the thing that we really care about. Is actually the size is really no longer that critical. It's, it's 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 whether the the power is increasing or not, and so um, uh, I think that one announcement is not enough of a data point, and so that's all I'm saying. And to be fair, with that announcement, they were kind of delaying rather than negating Moore's law. In other words, it's right. not 18 months, but like 24 or 36. Exactly months right, or right, right, like right. That, but then people are saying, even I think Michio Kaku, whom I interviewed on my show. Uh-huh. Uh, was talking that once they reach the fun five nanometer scale, then you have other things like leakage and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and all kinds of issues arising. Right, right. Yet 12 nanometers or something. Right, like right. That. So, so that we may be at the limits of how small you can make it, but there are exactly. other ways to increase the power per dollar yes. than just going smaller. You can start to stack up in three dimensions. You can, exactly. you can shift to quantum. I mean, there's just so many things. So I am very... I think that one data point is not enough to say that the I'm talking about Moore's law in the broader sense of the doubling of power per dollar, and that um, if if that was to stop, we we would really have to change our view of the future. Let's look at the exactly opposite possibility now, because interestingly, Google also just a few months ago came up with an announcement about their D-Wave quantum computer. Right, right. And they said that they have proof that it's a hundred million times faster right. than uh, uh, von Neumann architecture. Right, uh, right, right. Classical computers. Sure. Yeah. So, so you, we could have this huge boost and everything is going to go even faster. Exactly. Uh, in which case, um, I don't, yeah, I mean, it, I don't, I'm sure it's a different problem. I, I suspect we'll go in the same direction as we have been. I mean, if we had a million times more power, would that change anything I said? I have to think about that. That'd be a good hundred million. A hundred million. Yeah. Yeah. In your book, you're talking, talking about, about trillion. how, Exactly. Well, yeah, but you're talking about how quantitative change be, beyond a certain point becomes a qualitative change. Right, right. There's a, a, a factor of a trillion. Water and stuff right. from, from ice into liquid. Well, no, actually, there's another part of the book, which is, is, is this idea that um, a trillion times anything is qualitatively different. So yes, yes. Uh, a, a, a dust moat is unseeable, unweighable, doesn't make any difference. But if you have something trillion this time of it that's the size of an elephant which has all the impact in the world and that things uh, so, so if you if you have anything trillion times more that is qualitatively something different so if you had a trillion times more power in com- computation it would be quanti- qualitatively different and I, and I haven't really thought about that but that's a fantastic exercise to to imagine mm-hmm. yeah that's another I, that's another book absolutely yeah well uh, because I, I've interviewed uh, Jordi Rose, who is the chief technology officer of uh, D-Wave Quantum Computers, actually, and it was a fantastic interview. Um, now, let me read another s- sentence here from the intent that you put to yourself and, and invite you to uh, walk us through maybe a few of your uh, active verbs here to see how you can accomplish that. And you say... Uh, my intent in this book is to uncover the roots of digital change so that we can embrace them. And a little bit later, you say why that's important. You say is that get the ongoing process right and it will keep generating ongoing benefits in our new era. Processes trump products. And, and then you talk about these 12 processes that 
that are shaping everything for the next two or three decades. So pick a few and, and walk us through that, please. A few of the 12, well, well um, I'm reluctant to choose the one that I think is the most important because I suspect that you have talked about it many times, which is cognification, artificial intelligence, which is by far the most profound and altering of, of the 12. And I suspect that it's going to produce a change on the level of the industrial revolution and beyond, um, touching every aspect of our lives. And I'm sure you've talked about that a lot. I'm happy that's to talk about it more. That's why my show is called Singularity One on One, and why I right, invited right. you here. So that's sure. By okay. Means. Sure. Sure. So, so um, the analogy uh, that I use is um, that the first industrial revolution came about because we invented artificial power, artificial energy. In agricultural era, we had to do everything with our own muscles or animal muscles, and that was limiting in many ways. And then we made this invention called artificial power that harnessed uh, you know, water power, steam power, fossil fuels, and then electricity to distribute it. And that um, new artificial power enabled us to uh, build skyscrapers, um, make railways, create cities, suburbs, everything that we're surrounded. The, the, the very environment that you're surrounded has all harnessed this artificial power which we made cheap and ubiquitous and we sent over on a grid uh, so that every farm and homestead and factory in the world could, could purchase this commodity, utility, electricity, power, cheap. And that when you drive down the road in your car, you are harnessing the equivalent of 250 horses just with a flick of a switch. Okay, and that's that, that power multiplied by a million times uh, is the industrial revolution you take something that was manual like a water pump and then you electrify it and you buy the electricity on a grid and you have electric pump and that you just do that over and over again and you have the industrial revolution which affects everything and that we're now about to do something even more powerful which is to have artificial minds and add it to that artificial power so instead of just having 250 horses in your car now you can have 250 minds on top of the 250 horses, and that's the auto-driven robo car. Okay, and so we're gonna we're gonna take that electric pump, and now we're gonna cognify it. We're gonna add intelligence and smartness to it, and we're gonna multiply that by a million times. And um, this power will come as a utility or a grid that anybody can use um, and purchase as much as you want. Um, and so that's the vision where we, where we have this 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 infrastructure of applied artificial smartness, artificial learning, all this that's available to anybody and anything we could imagine. The most obscure thing we're going to uh, we're going to cognify, and anything everything we electrify, we're going to additionally cognify. And so um, it's big, it's huge. Um, it's mind-bogglingly vast, and uh, um, it's not anything to do about smarter than humans because, in fact, I think that's a completely erroneous view of the world. This is one of the arguments I have with Nick Bostrom is that the view of intelligence is a single dimension. It's just IQ. 
and and you have a kind of a little IQ and a, and a mouse and you're a little bit more for a chimp and a little bit more for a stupid human and average human and genius and there's this one large kind of like a loudness getting louder like decibels and I think that's that's fundamentally wrong because our own intelligences are these sweets a symphony of different cognitive notes and instruments. We have different kinds of intelligences like deductive reasoning, spatial reasoning, emotional intelligence. We have maybe hundreds of different varieties and types and nodes of thinking that make up our own intelligence. And that some of those notes are louder than others and some are dimmer and they change per person. And the animals have a, 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 a suite of them as well. And some of those instruments are actually the same. Some of those varieties are the same, but they're louder or, or quieter in animals. In some cases, they're louder than humans. The squirrels have a long-term memory that exceeds ours, so they can remember where to bury the nuts. And when we make the artificial intelligence is that we're going to do the same thing. They're going to be combinations of different kinds of intelligences some of them are very narrow and small right now we have only a few like your calculator is smarter than you are in arithmetic it's a single it's a single type of thinking that exceeds ours and so we they're smarter than us but only in certain dimensions and 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 as they become more complicated it's impossible to say one thing is smarter than the other it's because they have of different kinds of thinking and that's the thing about ai is that it's going to think differently than we do by definition by design the reason why we want to put that kind of artificial mind into a car is that it's not thinking like a human it's not driving like a human it's not distracted by consciousness and so this artificial thinking that we're going to do is going to be basically we're going to going to try and populate and invent and engineer as many different types of thinking and we're going to bring that into our lives and all these artificial types of thinking which are smarter than humans in many in some directions but not all um that we're going to make this uh work for us and this the, the, this is this is like so huge because we're going to be able to think about things and think in ways that we as humans could not. And it's not just that they can do stuff that we don't want to do. It's they're going to do things that we haven't thought about doing or, or couldn't do before. And that we're going to work and partner with them, that, 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 that we're working with these things. And it's not, there's, there's no sense of that they're against us. It's there, there, there are niches that are going to be, not in our niche. Let, let me just stop you here for a second because I think what you just did was perhaps the, the best uh, kind of argument against Nick Bostrom's uh, kind of uh, visual tool that he uses so far where he takes a, a straight sort of linear historical evolutionary line and he puts sort of the, the chimpanzees or the great apes and then what he calls the village yep. idiot and right. then the, the genius and then all the way to the right, he puts artificial right, intelligence right. and he shows the, the small gaps between the village idiot and, and the chimp and the genius. And then AI is all the way on the other side. And you're showing, right. you're saying we cannot put them on the same linear graph because it's a lot more multidimensional and complex. Yeah, right. It's, it's a hugely complex dimensional, high dimensional matrix. And here's, here's one of the things is that, and this is another argument, is people say, well, human intelligence is a general purpose intelligence. That's also fundamentally wrong. There's no such thing as a general purpose intelligence. There's no general purpose organism. We have a very, very specific kind of intelligence that was evolved over millions of years for one purpose, which was for us to survive. 
And that when we start to populate this world of all possible intelligences, we'll discover that our intelligence is way off to the corner, just like we're in the corner of the galaxy. I call that the Copernican, coming Copernican revolution in intelligence, where we understand that there's not a general purpose intelligence. We're a very, very specific mixture that was evolved to, for one thing, and we're off into the corner of this. You can have a general purpose like a Swiss army knife, but that actually is a very specific thing. It's not general purpose at all. It's a, it's a combination which most of the things don't do very well. There's an engineering trade-off. There's exactly. always engineering trade-off. If you want to do something that's sort of round or general, you have a cost for that. And that's not in the center. It's, it's not the central thing and all these other satellite intelligences are revolving around. There is no such thing as a general purpose. You can have a combo thing, a Swiss Army version, that is, that is not very good for very much, but can do lots of things. That's fine. But that's not a general purpose intelligence. There's no universal sense of intelligence is that that you can then amplify and make bigger i've, a, I've asked a lot of um these guys okay what does a, what does an uh an ai that's uh, that's smarter than human look like other than the fact that it works faster is there anything else about it and 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 and, and you know i i think it's it's they can't answer that because they would have to say well it, it thinks differently and as soon as you start to to, to map things as being different um, you realize is this idea of smarter than humans is just a fallacy. Okay, it's 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 un, it's not useful because, as I said, right now your calculator is smarter than you are, and we're not talking about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, how should we reply to very smart and well-known people mm-hmm. such as Dr. Hawking, Elon Musk, who right, right. AI like summoning the demon, Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak? Uh, a bunch of others who are warning us of the dangers of AI. Right. So, so even though the, the concept of smarter than human and then therefore this kind of a bootstrapping smarter than human, I think is not, um, not valid, it, it doesn't mean that there aren't worries or concerns. And so I think that the, 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 we could certainly – and have to imagine the scenario that sort of there's there's some rogue um, planetary scale AI that decides to off humans. Okay, that is a scenario that I think um, is has a has a likelihood greater than zero. I think is very 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 small, but it's has to be on the it has to be on the on the block. And they would say that's an existential um, threat. Even though that, that that's maybe as likely as getting hit by an asteroid or whatever it is, um, it's there. So you have to be concerned about it. I don't think you have to be worried about it, but we should be concerned about it. And it, and so, but I think it's a very very low probability. And 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 I would say that there's other things to worry about that are a lot closer, more immediate, and higher um, higher probability. And so like you should what? focus on it. Well, for instance, I think um, one of the things that we don't fully appreciate is um, that. Uh, AIs, whether they're, they, as we make them more and more complex, we will be um, less and less able to understand how they arrived at a decision, and we'll be trusting those decisions. The black box problem. Exactly, right. So right now there are um, computer proofs using mathematics, and the, and the thing about them is they may have a, a million steps in them, and there's simply no human that can understand or, or even de- deconstruct that. And... So the idea is if we believe in every step of the way, 
then we have to kind of take that proof uh, at face value. So you have this AI that's proving this thing that we can't understand. Do we accept that proof or not? And if we accept it, the problem is we have to accept the fact that we don't have access to that. And there are going to be AIs in which we, they're making decisions that we won't be able to unravel. And the issue is that they may at times be prejudiced. They, they may actually make decisions in ways that say we don't approve, but we'll be unable to even determine if they're prejudiced or if they're biased or if they um, have something baked into them. And how to deal with that is going to be a huge challenge. And so those, those, that's a real problem that's within 30 years that we have to address. And I think there may be technological solutions to that. We may be able to, I think this is what a consciousness is. This is something, it's a tool that goes in that tries to surface some reasoning. So we may need another kind of AI that's actually going in, looking at AI and seeing if it can, if it can resurrect or uh, unravel what the logic is. And so, but I think it's, a, I think it's going to be an issue where we're going to have things in our lives and making decisions that we don't have access to that is a potential societal issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I interviewed David Ferrucci, who was the team leader behind Watson, and, and he told me, I have no idea why Watson got this one in, right and this one wrong. Right. Like, I don't, I really don't know, he told me. So, uh, yeah, th this, is a, this is a good example indeed. Uh, let me walk you through a couple of your other points, though, and, uh, or one other, and then we'll go to my most favorite one personally. But first... Tell us what is it that you call protopia and why is it important? Yeah. So I, I, I make it clear that I'm not a utopian and everybody knows what utopia is. This is kind of place where there's extreme harmony with technology and with the, the, the society infrastructure and, and there's a sense in which there is um, um, a, a stasis in some senses, a, a, a harmony, I guess is the best word. And I don't believe that that's um, possible, and I don't even think it's necessarily desirable, at least for me. I don't think it's possible because I think every new technology creates new problems, and almost as many new problems. It's and that a most full of, package. It, it, yeah, right, right. It comes with it. <laughs> and most, most of the problems we have in our society today are actually have been caused by past technologies, and I think that most of the technologies today, will problems in the future will be caused by the technologies of today. And so... Um, so I don't, I don't think utopia is because the more technology is, the more new problems there'll be. I'm, 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 a, I'm a protopian because I believe that the solutions to the problems that technology generates is actually more technology, more and better technology. So it's not by having less technology, it's by having more and better. And the, which, of course, then would just generate new problems. And the solutions to those new problems is more and better technology. So that is the sense of which you have a process and it's ongoing and it's never stopping. And I think the total result of that is that if we can create even 1% more than we destroy every year, that we get progress and we get civilization compounding that 1% difference. So I'm saying is that the difference between the problems and solutions may be an infinitesimal 1% that's not even visible. You may look around and it's hard to see that 1% difference, but it's there. And that 1% difference compounded annually is what we get out of progress. Okay, so there is a net gain. And the reason why I'm optimistic about that is simply because of history. Because for the past 200 years at least and more, 
we have incrementally gained on every metric that you want to measure that humans care about, we have slowly crept better, but not by much, but we don't really need much to compound over time. So, so that is protopia, where we are incrementally creeping towards betterment. It's not very fancy. It's not, it doesn't make very good movies. It's, um, it's boring in many ways, but that is the foundation of what we have that we're resting on today. But some skeptics will disagree with you, will say, Kevin, look, we have less fish today in the, in the oceans than we've had 200 years ago. We've had less uh, biodiversity than we've ever had. We are in, the, in actually the, the, the midst of a new extinction. We have uh, less ice on both the north and uh, 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 Greenland lost, like, I don't know, I was reading yesterday, four trillion tons of ice in the last four years, some, some flabbergasting number. Uh, we have more pollution. So they would say, what about all these metrics which are showing right, that right. we have gone backwards rather than forwards? Well, so, some of those I would disagree with. We don't have more pollution. We actually have less pollution. We actually, um, uh, species diversification, Anthropocene, that's a projection. That's actually not based on data. Okay? Uh, and I know this because I, I, I ran and started this thing, the All Species Inventory. So, so we average one species um, per year, the loss, one. That's documented. I mean, if you're looking at the data, if we're going to take the data, the data is, is that on average for the past 2,000 years, we've lost one species, okay? So, um, and then we, ha and we have a lot of new tools called genetic rescue, and we're trying to resurrect some of the extinct species. And so, um, again, if you just look at the data so far is, no, we have, there isn't an Anthropocene extinction there's, there's a projection of that, but I'm talking about if we take the data. And the data is actually that the pollution in the world is actually getting better. Better in terms of from where it was, say, 50 years ago. So there was, there was a period where we did increase it, but now we're, 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 we're cleaning up again. The, the Arctic, the climate thing, is an issue. And that is something that um, should, we should be alarmed by. But again, if we look at the measurements of, uh, you know, um, the data so far is well, okay. It's warmer. The, the it's melting. We can imagine where that we're going, but so far, what does that mean? Okay, so we we don't we don't have the data to show that that's a bad thing. So far, we have only our extrapolations into the future, which we still have time and can change. I think we can do geoengineering. So I'm saying that I'm optimistic because of history. It's possible that everything could change. But the probable statistical analysis is if for 200 years it's been getting better every year, it will probably continue. It doesn't mean that it has to, but it means it probably will. Kevin, uh, we only have uh, maybe about nine or 10 minutes left. So uh, my favorite of those 12 things that you have there on the list, and I'm not saying it's the most important, it's just <laughs> my favorite, is uh, what you call questioning or what yeah. I would call asking questions. So talk to me a little bit about that and tell me first, do you think that there is a difference between asking questions and questioning? And if it is, there is, what is it? Is it important or is it just semantics? Yeah, I, I don't think there is a big difference, at least in my mind. Uh, the way I was using it included asking questions. I think the, um, the, the, gen the, the, the basic framework is that um, uh, we're getting very good and technology is very, very good about answering questions. So 
Google answers 1 billion questions a day. Um, you can kind of uh, extrapolate that into the future. But what's interesting about those questions is that most of those questions uh, 30 years ago would never been asked because there was no chance of answering them. So these were, these were questions that nobody even knew wanted to be asked. And this is, a, for me, a great example of how technology creates new desires. Now we would feel incredibly frustrated if we couldn't ask those questions. Imagine if Google and the internet would go away, you'd say, well, how, how would I answer? How would, how would I answer all these questions I have every day? And you would say, you don't. Uh, it's, that's where we were. And so, um, so I would say now, like if you want an answer, you ask a machine. Um, because as we imagine this, this technology and AI going into it, there'll be increasingly better answers, more accurate, more easily gotten, and more of them going forward, and they're basically you know, free to some extent. Um, therefore, as these become abundant, I think we switch to seeing our role is not in making, answering questions, but in fact, um, asking questions, the questionings. And these become more and more difficult. And it's part of this whole general process that um, what uh, automation is good for is in uh, Things that are uh, doing things that are efficient, doing things more efficiently, more productivity. So any kind of a of a process, a job, a task that can be defined in terms of efficiency is something that goes to the to the robots. And what we're left are the things that are not very efficient. And fundamentally, exploration, exploring is inefficient. Uh, innovation, which is a type of questioning, is inefficient because it has failure. So you're asking, what if? What if I do that? What if I could do that? Can I do that? These are all questions that are at the heart of innovation. And that is fundamentally inefficient because you have dead ends. You have things that fail. You have, you have things that are going in the wrong direction. If you wanted to be 100% efficient in innovation, you just do the same thing over and over again. Same thing with science. Science is inherently inefficient because it's strung on a string of failures after another. It's experimental. Exploration, human relationships are fundamentally inefficient. What are we doing? I mean, we're 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 just not not accomplishing very much that is efficiency. So, we are moving into this area, which will be our strength, which is asking good questions. And we can talk about what makes a good question, but that's where our strength is right now compared to the machines and that's what's going to become valuable so it's not a good answer it's a good question that will be most valuable excellent and i would like to read here three three points uh quickly and the first one goes like that so at the end of the day a world of super smart ubiquitous answers encourages a quest for the perfect question what makes a perfect question ironically the best questions are not questions that lead to answers because answers are on their way to becoming cheap and plentiful. A good question is worth a million good answers. A little bit later you say, a good question is not concerned with a correct answer. A good question cannot be answered immediately. A good question challenges existing answers. A good question is one you badly want answered once you hear it, but had no inkling you cared before uh, it was asked, and, and 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 so on and so on. And I have to say, we are kindred spirits on this very much because that's why I call Socrates, who is the man with the questions, uh, and and who is known for not knowing 
anything <laughs> other than knowing that he doesn't know and for, for asking good questions, hopefully. And I actually wrote a piece uh, a few years ago called The World is Transformed by Asking Questions. And let me read you the first criticism that I got there and ask you to respond to it, perhaps. So it goes like this. It's written by Peter Voss, who is a well-known uh, AI researcher. And he says, questions are a starting point to usefulness. However, they need to make sense. They need to be answerable. Without good questions, you spin your wheels. Then without acting on your answers, you're wasting intelligence and time. But the key is they have to be answerable. And you say that they don't necessarily have to be answerable. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think art, I mean, you gave me a new definition just at this moment. I think art is a question that's not answerable. So, so I suspect Peter would not have art in very high value. You say it's a waste of time. It's not very useful. Why would you bother painting something that had already been painted before? I and think Pablo Picasso said the worst thing you can try to do is explain art. Exactly. And so um, I think he cuts out a huge swath of human experience and, and enjoyment and actually reason to live. Um, so I would argue with him that um, things don't always have to be pragmatic and useful. That's a utilitarian view, but I think we're much more complex than that, and that uh, a good question can be unanswerable. It's like, you know, who, who's, uh, if you ask who made the beginning of the universe, that's unanswerable in some, by some definition. Uh, what made it, or how did it begin? Um, we don't even know if it's unanswerable. Uh, and that's another question is how would you know if a question was unanswerable until you ask it? And and the interesting thing is that people and authorities are scared from people asking those questions because I right, remember right, right. when Stephen Hawking went to talk to the Pope, the, the Pope told him something like, well, you have a fantastic theory about the Big Bang and all of that, but don't bother asking the question be what was before right, right. the Big Bang because <laughs> yeah, that right, is right. God. Right, 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 yeah. So, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, the, for me, the, this immediate response to, to Peter's question is, how do you know if an answer is unquestionable? You just don't know, unless you ask more questions, unless you ask that question. So, I, I, I think, I think his criticism doesn't really hold up to this idea that questions become more valuable, that they're the central thing that we're going to be doing as humans, that it's the human quest, and that answers. Um, while we'll still be involved in it, particularly trying to answer something for the first time, um, obviously that's that's a that's a big process. That's I mean we will be making answers, but I'm just saying not that answers go away, not the answers are unimportant. It's just that the questions are more important than the answers. Totally agree with you, Kevin. Unfortunately, time's advancing here very much, and we have only maybe two or three minutes. So let me ask you the the last, and I think this is a very good place to stop actually so let me ask you the second last question what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work i have a complicated website with lots of blogs uh if you they're all under the rubric of my initials which is kk.org kk.org and there's you know there's a book page there's translations about the books there's my other efforts my projects like cool tools where i review with others I oversee the reviewing of one cool tool a day. There's true films where I review the best documentaries that are out there. 
extrapolations, which is this collection of long-term forecasts. There's there's other stuff there at kk.org and on the social medias. I'm Kevin Two Kelly, Kevin Number Two Kelly, at Twitter and Facebook, etc. Google. I'm more active in Twitter than Facebook, although I'm not very active on any of them. Well, uh, the last question that I would ask, and maybe you would ask, in other words, how do we wrap up our conversation? Do you want to send us with a particular message that you find is the most important thing, or do you want to send us with a question? I'll leave it all up to you. No, I think I'll, I'll make a statement, which is a reiteration of maybe something from what technology wants. I hope I'm not repeating myself, but I, I, I believe that uh, I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm, I'm tremendously optimistic because I think we're at the precipice of a whole new continent of benefits. There'll be a whole new string of really serious problems, but I think the benefits will outweigh. And more importantly, I think that um, what we're doing is we're, in, we're increasing the number of choices and possibilities. And in particular, we're opening up the number of ways in which we can collaborate. All this new technology is, is, is providing us new ways that we can actually collaborate, cooperate, make stuff together at a scale and speed and in dimensions that were never before possible. So we're going to be making new things at the planetary scale. We're going to be making new companies that were bigger than ever. We're going to be gathering more data and knowing more about ourselves. We're going to use AI as a probe, as a scope to understand our own intelligences, which we can't do any other way. We're, we're, we're really at the beginning of this. And each one of these things, these opportunities, um, opens up new worlds, and they often become platforms for even further steps into the future. It's sort of this, we're making a platform that's kind of walking out into the abyss by each step we, we were making the platform for us to take the next step and that extension into the cosmos by making a million new species of thinking in mind that that may so there may be problems in science and business that are so difficult that our own human minds can't get to them so we have a two-step process where we make another kind of mind that can think with us and to solve some of these problems like say gravity waves or quantum energy whatever it is and that experience of making all these things of, of making even consumer things so if you're involved in making something whether it's grand or a small device or an app it doesn't matter you are participating i think in the long arc of technology which is to increase the possibilities and options in the world at large making more and more possible for every human on this planet to have a chance to express their genius in some way and to share it and we have lots of basic stuff. We want to have the technologies of clean water, universal education brought to everybody. That's a fundamental thing you need first. But in addition to that, we want to open up the possibility space so that every person born, not just now, but in the future, would have the chance to find and something, some instrument or tool or technology to allow them to express their genius and to share it with others. And that's what we get out of making more technology. That's what we get out of embracing all this stuff. It's not just to speed up the movement of money. It's not just to increase 
or the consumer things that we consume is not just to have more stuff in our houses is actually to participate in this long arc of evolution which is increasing possibilities and options in the universe it's a cosmic thing so so you can participate in something bigger when you make something and kevin you called this a process i, I would call it a journey and going back to the question yeah. and answer points each answer in my view is like a stop point along the journey whereas the question is the thing that pushes us forward sure. and the answer is the thing that holds us in a single spot right and right that's right why we should embrace the question because we're embracing the journey that's why right another way to say it is i talk about the the finite and infinite games there's two kinds of games there's a finite game when you play to win that's a zero-sum game then there's the infinite game and the infinite game is is the you play it to keep the game going and make it better and there you you hack the rules to keep the game going and the other one you have to play within the rules we f feel very unfair if you kind of cheat on the rules in a finite game but the whole point of the infinite game is you're hacking the rules to keep the game going forever and keep everything getting better and that's the game that we're playing with technology is the infinite game well kevin kelly thank you very much for having us along your journey and letting us play that game with you today Oh, it was really great. Thanks for making it so, so much fun and I for asking really great questions. I really appreciate it. And I wouldn't be Socrates if at least I didn't try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we know, that, we know that you're not a robot now. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kevin. All righty. Thank you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 